Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And now, now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn on. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow, now is there? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast with host A. Trunk. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday, wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for checking it out and joining us for rock talk and interviews each and every week. Uh, If you're listening to this on the day it posts, which would be July 7th, uh, just a heads up, if you're in the L.A. area, the L.A. invasions are returning to the rainbow tonight. And I will be there doing the radio show from the rainbow patio, 7 to 9. It's free, no ticket needed, nothing. Come on down, hang out with us. It'll be great to be doing the show once again from the rainbow Uh, The radio show, of course, and we'll be celebrating Ronnie James Dio with a special event uh, to commemorate what would have been Ronnie's 80th birthday and also the re-release of the Holy Diver album in a special deluxe edition. It's going to be a lot of fun, so if you're in the L.A. area, tonight is the night, 7 to 9 at the Rainbow on the patio. A lot of special guests. going to be a fun hang. Hope you are having... uh, a great week. Hope you have a good, uh, those in the U.S., hope you had a good 4th of July. And here we are with another podcast, with another interview for you. As I tell you every week, the interviews you hear on this podcast originated on my Sirius XM radio show, which is called Trunk Nation, and heard live Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, nightly re-airs 10 to midnight Eastern and full access to full shows, interviews, audio, video, more, anytime you want on the SiriusXM app. If you are in the U.S. or Canada and you only listen to this podcast, you know the deal. You are only getting a tiny, tiny fraction of what I do on a daily basis on the radio, live on SiriusXM. There's also a sixth show on Hair Nation most Mondays. And uh, don't forget about my syndicated FM show. So a lot of good stuff going on. And be sure to follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page, eddietrunk.com is the website. If I sound a little hoarse, a little weird, that's just because I'm fighting a cold, but um, we'll get through it. 
The interview you're about to hear on this week's podcast happened in my Vegas home studio, mm, I guess I want to say about a month ago, and it is one of our producer spotlights. If you know anything about my shows, you know I like to talk to anybody who is involved with or loves rock music. And I often have done full-length interviews with producers. And I was in LA, I'm sorry, I was in Vegas, where I have a second home, and I uh, found out Nick Raskulinitz was going to be in town. And Nick, if you don't know his name, is one of the most noted producers currently making records. He's actually a listener of my radio show. He's worked with a ton of artists from Rush to Foo Fighters to Hailstorm and on and on and on. And uh, he took some time away from his vacation in Vegas to come to my studio and sit in with us, talk about how he got his start producing records and give us some behind the scenes stories about the artists he worked with. Uh, and I'll tell you, we just scratched the surface in the nearly two hours that we had with him. Probably boiled down on this podcast somewhere around an hour and change of conversation. So we'll have to do more for sure soon. The good news is the interview you're about to hear was done when I wasn't sick and wasn't uh, wheezy like I am right now. So you won't have to deal with my voice sounding like this for much longer. So you know what? With all that being said, without further ado, let's get right to it. This week's podcast, producer Nick Raskulinitz. You're going to love this. Great stories about some legendary artists from the people who make the records this time around. It's all about Nick. So check it out on the podcast right now. So Nick, let's get into your story, man. I've known you for a while. I've always appreciated your work. And I love talking to producers to get the stories be behind some of these records and, and their story of how they started. So your history, so you're from Tennessee originally, I right? I grew up in Knoxville. Yep, so you Knoxville, grew up in Tennessee. Knoxville. Where, when did the w musician, did you start out playing? I started out 83, 84. Me and one of my best friends started a band in a basement. He was the drummer. His parents let him have a drum set, let us practice on the weekends. It's the full story. Teenage dudes starting bands, basements, parents taking us to their first our first gigs because we're not old enough to play in bars. Right. You know, eventually band keeps going, band breaks up, new band starts, band gets a van, band starts touring around the southeast, band starts making their own recordings, which was me. I bought basically I took all my when I graduated high school, I took my college money that my grandparents had saved and given me and I went to Hughley's music shop and bought a four track and microphones and cables and stands and headphones and converted my mom's garage into a little demo studio so that we could record our own band and listen back to our songs. Now, in this band, you're the drummer? I was a bass player. Bass player. Yeah. Okay, so where did you even get the knowledge or the interest even at that earliest phase of wanting to learn to record on a four-track and... It sounds like very early on you had an interest in capturing sound. I did. Even in high school, I was already, even before then, I was interested. I remember when I was really little, Eddie, I got one of those little cassette recorders with the buttons at the front and the speaker all built in. And I used to sit and I had a little transistor radio and I would be in my bed and I was, you remember that quarter flash song, Harden My Heart? Of course. I was obsessed with that song <laughs> for some reason in like the seventh grade. 
sixth or seventh grade and I would wait for it to come on the radio and I would press record and I would record it onto the cassette deck. That's how I was making mixtapes. Well, did you now? Did you do your own mix of it somehow when you recorded it? No, it was just this cassette. I God, I wish I had it. It was probably all chopped up and beat up. Right. Just recording songs coming over the radio into this little cassette recorder, just recording it through the air into the mic, and I would have little comp cassettes that I could listen to in my room. So when do you make the decision? It doesn't sound like any of these bands went anywhere, right? In terms of success, Not did really. you get a deal or anything with anyone? No, no, we didn't get a deal. Honestly, the thing that changed the trajectory of my, trajectory of my life was out of the cellar. Really, it was out of the cellar. It was rat out of the cellar? What hearing it? Hearing it. I remember. I'll never forget it. I was in the seventh grade, and I heard round and round on the radio. And that sent me into the direction that I am in. To want to play or to be a producer? To want to play. To want to play. To want to play and write songs. Right. And so, you know, fast forward, uh, mid-90s, doing the band. I'm recording the band. We're listening to our songs. We're tweaking our songs, shaping our songs, trying to make our songs better. Other friends of my ba- of my band start to hear the demos that I'm making. Hey, will you record us? That demo sounds kick-ass. Load up my station wagon, go to their house, cool. Hey, there's a living room, great. Let's record the drums in here. Let's put the guitar amps in bathrooms and bedrooms. Cool, what time are your parents home? All right, we got to be done by five. And I would just record bands all over Knoxville. So, so okay, so that's all well and good, but most people go to school or have a mentor to learn how to mic, how to record, how to mix. Did you have one or was it trial and error? It was all trial and error. Really? I was doing everything, just figuring it out as I was going along for a good four or five year period. In 1996 or 95, my band decided we were going to move to LA. We were going to go for it. Like, let's go to LA. If we're going to do this, let's do it. Right. We wanted to be rock stars, but I was already recording in the side. It hadn't taken over yet. We get out to L.A. We start. Did you playing. do the whole L.A. like get in the car and drive across the yeah. country? and oh, it was the st- eating burritos and Dude, get, trying to get there. It and, was the stereotypical right. like, like, all right, I'm going to be at your. We're going to be at your house at 10 a.m. with the U-Haul. Right. We're going to be at your house <laughs> at 2 p.m. with the U-Haul, and then Friday at eight in the morning, we're hitting the road. We were, you know, we had the U-Haul towing a car. Everything we chasing had in it. Chasing the dream. Kids chasing the dream. We had the band van towing a car. So yeah, four dudes and two and a van and a van and two U-Hauls drove to LA. Immediately we got an apartment in Hollywood. Four dudes living in an apartment. Immediately we started playing gigs around Hollywood, Coconut Teaser, Whiskey Roxy, Smalls. And are people showing up? Not really. Because nobody knows who you nobody are. Nobody right? knew who we were, man. We were trying and, and it was a really bad time for us. I mean, we were this really kind of crazy punk funk metal kind of amalgamation of a bunch of different things and we we were this thing but we really didn't know what we were but everybody was really good musicians so people liked us because we could all play really well but I don't know just something never clicked man and we've all you know we're all still friends and it was all good but right as that was happening I got a call from a friend of mine who was making a record at Sound City said Sound City needed a runner. Now, Sound City, for those that don't know, a legendary L.A. recording studio. Mm-hmm. Legendary. legendary. I'd never heard of it. Um, this guy, Brian Bell, who plays guitar in Weezer, grew up down the street from me. He used to take me to high school. before In I, Tennessee. In Tennessee. He grew up in Knoxville. And before I had a car, he used to take me to school. Okay. <laughs> so wow. we, were, we were friends all throughout high school. And then immediately after high school, he left. 
He went to L.A. the whole time. Nick, you got to get out of here. L.A. is so great. Blah, 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 blah. So anyway. And he tells you Sound City needs a runner. That's how I and got And for the job. those that don't know, most maybe probably do, but a runner is basically a gopher. Yeah. So when you get a gig as a runner, you if there's a band and a producer working in a studio, somebody needs a coffee, somebody needs a sandwich at the deli, somebody needs anything, yeah. you're the guy that's standing around that gets dispatched to do it. You're literally a runner, a gopher. I was cleaning toilets, picking up food, making sure nobody's food delivery was messed up, just doing anything. At this point, to be around it. That, yeah. That's the, I've told people about that all the time who approach me about how to get into radio and like, how do you do it? Do I go to school? Do And I say nothing beats experience and trying to just be around it. Nothing. If you can physically be in the building doing anything, you never know where that opportunity will come. Yeah. My first years in radio, I mean, I didn't get paid for years. I was just there like, oh, you need an album queued up, but let me get that out of the sleeve for you and yeah. clean it and put it back. And in and, and Sound City, there couldn't have been a better place for me. It was almost, it was almost, remember Animal House, the, the frat? It was almost like a frat house in the Valley recording studio. Yeah. It was like all the Hollywood studios were really nice. And it's, it's what you think when you think a big recording studio. But Sound City wasn't like that. It was out in Van Nuys. It was like in this complex with like machine shops and stuff. And you walk in the front door. There was nothing nice. Now, Sound City is the studio that Grohl did the documentary on, right? Yeah. And he, didn't he buy that console? Yeah, he bought the board before they sold the studio. And he still has it, yeah. right? That's in his... Yep. In his studio, so Sound City doesn't exist anymore in any form, right? I think the building's still there and the rooms are there, but I don't know what it's called. I think it's called something different. It's switched. It's switched hand a few times now. And just for context for the listeners who don't follow this stuff as closely as we do, before your time, the legendary records—just a few that were made at Sound City—you mentioned Out of the Cellar. I think that was done there. Was done there. Two of my all-time favorite records, Out of the Cellar and Loudness Is Thunder in the East, were both recorded at Sound City. Is that right? And I didn't find that out till after I started working there. Didn't Van Halen do? Did Van Halen do something? I'm not aware of Van Halen, but a lot of classic Tom Petty stuff, all the REO Speedwagon records, Fleetwood Foreigner, Mac, I think. Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, I mean the, the tons of records. You know, Tool. There's so much stuff we can't even think of. That, right. But it was just a, an amazing rock studio it was pretty much just rock bands coming there and so i'm sitting at the front desk and i'm answering the phone and i'm cleaning the toilet and i'm driving all the way up to ventura boulevard in my band van getting somebody a latte <laughs> trying to park and driving back holding my hand and the whipped creams melted and the, the producer's not happy that the whipped creams melted so guess what i get to do go get it again drive back <laughs> so i'm driving back and you know and then eventually i'm sitting there and i start to see you know you know, Joe Barisi and Sylvia Massey and Rick Rubin and, you know, uh, T-Bone Burnett. And people who are working there. All these people are working in and I'm, you know, You're going the kid to get at them the front stuff desk. and I'm coming to the studio cleaning the, you know, and yeah, exactly. And start to become friends with these people. And, you know, then all of a sudden after, you know, a year or so of running, I start to move more into the studio. You know, sessions were getting a lot bigger. You know, Greg Fiddleman worked at Sound City. Okay. I came up underneath Greg Fiddleman. Okay, and for those, and, and again, I always put this in a context for the audience because not everybody is deeply into the yeah. liner notes and who produces and mixes. But Fiddleman is did the last uh, Metallica record. He's done Slayer stuff. One of the one of the guys for the heavier stuff. I mean, I loved the last uh, Metallica record. So he's gone on to have to 
to be amazing. And he was supposed to do the new Scorpions record and started out on it and actually has a bunch of co-writes on it. Mm-hmm. But those guys, because of COVID, couldn't get in the same room together. Mm-hmm. And Klaus told me that it was killing them with the time difference trying to have him do it remotely from L.A. so they, they couldn't finish with him. You know, so, so the scenario is... You know, if there's a big, massive session and somebody like Greg or Billy, the other assistant, they need another pair of hands, they come up and get the front desk, lock the door, turn the alarm on, come on. And then you're in there doing whatever they need you to do, keeping track of the running dat, making notes on what people are saying, going out there, moving mics, unplugging stuff. I mean, so I started to get into the room and started to be in the room with the band and the engineers and stuff. And it was just like, okay, I, I see that. This is okay. I've been kind of doing the same stuff without really realizing it. Mm-hmm. I'm making sure guitars are in tune. I'm making sure there's a cool drum fill. I'm telling bands, I don't think that part's as good as the part before it. You know, I'm talking to bands about lyrics, but I didn't really realize that I was, that was producing. Right. So when I got to Sound City, that's when I figured out how to engineer and make records sound like records. I'd never seen a Neve before. I had no idea what that was. You know, so then I started to kind of lose it with the band because the nothing was happening. We were just kind of spinning our wheels, couldn't get any any real traction happening. And at Sound City, I started to kind of climb the ladder a little bit, you know, and then all of a sudden I got into the assistance chair and I was working, you know, seven days a week, 80, 90, 100 hour weeks, you know, every day and just working nonstop on all these records. So basically assisting whatever producer was coming in. Yes. And 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 basically doing whatever was called for in that gig. Yeah, anything. And then where does the first big moment come for you that you get the call to actually be the guy? So, and this is something you talked about on your show. You're going to like this connection. Jack Richardson, his son Garth Richardson, Gugga mm-hmm. Garth, yes. was producing a band at Sound City in 1999, and I was his assistant. He was on the phone over in the corner. I couldn't really hear the conversation. I was doing something. I just remember him saying the words, Nick can do it. He gets off the phone, basically tells me that there's a record that he can't do. He doesn't have the time, but he thinks I can do it. Mm-hmm. So he threw me a bone, and that was the first record I ever produced on my own, and it was for Tooth and Nail Records. It was a band called Dogwood. Okay. And from that point forward, I kind of stepped out of the assisting chair, and I started to go around town, and you know, because I had a credit, I had a production. Now, when you produced this band Dogwood for the first time, and your your first production credit, did you do it at Sound City? Yeah, we did it at Sound City in Studio B. It was like a seventeen day record, like all in. Now, I've not heard of the band. Were they, was it not successful? It was okay. The Dogwood, uh, they were on Tooth and Nail Records, which was a Christian label. Okay, so it was kind of that type of market, right? And it was like super punk rock, you know, super fast, super heavy Christian punk rock. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. It was right? rad. It was fun. Great energy. You know, I didn't care that it was Christian. I just loved the energy right. and the riffs. But but my point is, if it was not since it wasn't overly commercially successful in the mainstream, mm-hmm. did, did did having a credit still enable you yes. to get more work? It didn't matter that, that it wasn't a platinum record? No, that credit gave me clout, like immediately. So that's your badge to start knocking that, on doors. That was my badge to start knocking on doors, and I had already met Dave before that. Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl. I had assisted on a session for them. They came in and needed to record a song, and I was just the assistant. Um, there was another producer engineer, but me and Dave hit it off like immediately, mm-hmm. like 
we became. I could see that because Dave's such a music geek like us, and that's my. Every time I talk to Dave, it's we're talking about other bands or yeah. crazy rock stories, not Foo Fighters. Dave's even. from Virginia. I'm from Tennessee. We're kind of neighbors. We got that Southern thing. We're both in L.A. Yeah. You know, and then. Um, so I did the Dogwood thing, started getting out, looking for bands in Hollywood to record. You know, back then, labels would do, like, demo deals. I'd get a call from an A&R guy, like, hey, I heard the Dogwood record. I got this band. You know, we get, here's, you know, $20,000, go in and record some five songs. Right. Development deals, Development basically. deals. Yeah, I, I used to manage some bands, and for yeah. people that don't know how that works, is when a label is kind of interested in a band, but they don't want to go all in and do a full deal and spend all the money, they want to kick the tires a little bit more, they offer you a contract that you get a, a, enough money to make a real demo with a real producer, and they have the option to then sign you over anyone else if they like what they've paid for for the demo and if they don't they'll cut you loose exactly so right. I, I was doing stuff like that dude by the way real quick do development deals still happen no they're kind of not a thing no. anymore right there's no a and r that's a shame yeah. the, the private investor is the new a and r guy right exactly yeah that, and i've talked about that so often not to get diverted from your your timeline here because it's fascinating but i that that's one of the real problems i see when I see young bands trying to figure it out, I'm like, used to be that the, the labels and A&R people were at least a gatekeeper to the flood of stuff coming. Yeah. So that if it's somebody said, yeah, if somebody handed you a recording, you know that at least it went through a, a few stop gaps before it got to being a recording. Yeah. Now that's all out the window. You, you knew that if a band got to like an A-level A producer, the label was behind it. Right. They were going to be behind it, and they're going to push it. Right no now, matter, it's the Wild period. West. Doesn't it, do you yeah. have a deal? Do you not have a deal yet? It's just there's not. It's it's yeah. That's it, and it's completely oversaturated. But anyway, so you meet you meet Grohl at Sound City. Mm -hmm. You hit it off. We hit it off. A few years later, he comes back to Sound City again. And it's like, hey, how you doing? Great to see you. Been a couple of years. Blah blah blah. And you know, exchange numbers again, and and kind of kept in touch. And the whole time I'm doing my stuff in the background, I had, I had made a record with Danzig and I had started working with a friend of mine's band called Fireball Ministry. And sure, I know J Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah Jim Rota. We, yeah. And we started to make a little Who's noise. Who's also friends with Dave. Yeah, and we started making some noise with Fireball. You know, they got a record deal and it's like, holy crap, I did a band, you know, a band nobody's really ever heard of and we made a record and they got a record deal and they're making videos and like, this has happened. I, I can do this. I can do this. I've already been in LA for like six years, five years at that point. Were you making money? No. But you enough to survive? I was surviving. Me and my... Because LA's not cheap. Me and my you? wife now, we were we were living in an apartment in Hollywood. I think it was like 750 bucks a month. And right. she had a full-time waitressing job and I was assisting at Sound City. I was assisting and, you know, I'd go back and assist every once in a while, you know, if some if somebody needed something. But then when I was kind of breaking out on my own, no, there wasn't there wasn't any money really. It was just getting the experience. So does Grohl lead to you doing the Foo Fighters? Yes. So we ended up running into each other, and he was talking about making one by one, and he wanted to make it back in Virginia at his house. He had just built a studio in his basement. He didn't want to do like the big, you know, fancy studio thing. Right. And he had made his previous record at the same studio at the house, which he did learn to fly, which was sounded great and was hugely successful. So we, I ended up going back there with him and at the beginning of the record, there was a different, there was a different producer and a whole different timeline and stuff. I was more engineering and stuff. And then 
you know, something happened. I think the other producer had a, another gig or something like it overlapped and then he was gone. And then Dave took a break cause he went and played drums on the Queens of the stone age album. Mm-hmm. And then he, I think, you know, went on vacation or something and wrote some more songs and was like, Hey, let's get back and, you know, let's make the record. Let's finish it. Let's go in and, and redo it. So me and him and Taylor went back to Virginia and we basically re started redoing everything that we had done and adding times like these and low and one other song. I think it might've, it might've been halo. So we added those three and then we redid all the other stuff, all my life and all that stuff. And we did it in like two weeks. It was super fast. And that record is so raw because you know, he wanted it to be that way. And all my life, which is they've opened with so many times. Yeah. I've heard Dave say that that opening, it's like, a, I think he said it's like almost Jaws. Like, you know, like yeah. it, there's about to be in it. It's such a, it's such a cool, uh, open you know such a cool part way to open yeah. the show i mean when it kicks in it's just yeah, we so had it we had heavy absolute blast recording that so i knew that song people were gonna freak when they i freaked when i heard it it's like holy crap and one of the fun things about recording that song is i'll never forget this we were doing the vocals dave sitting on the couch with a u47 right in his face and i could see the sun coming up behind him and birds were chirping in the mic did you get that record? Was on that, that recorded? Vocal, there are birds chirping on those vocal tracks. If you listen to that song closely, you'll hear birds chirping. No, on... you'd have to solo the vocal. But I remember they're on there. Well, that's right. Because it was at his house? At his house, right next to a window. And we would always be like, oh, shit. When the birds start chirping, it's okay. It's like 6 o'clock in the morning. We need the, we need the Nick Raskowitz <laughs> birds chirping remix of All My Life by Foo Fighters. Yeah, and we just did it. And then we went back out to L.A. and... Um, Nate put his bass parts on it and Chris played guitar on it and boom, that was it. And then eight months late, and then All My Life came out, went to number one and just sat there for like 20 weeks or something insane. And then the band won a a Grammy. All My Life won a Grammy for best rock performance. And then the record won best rock album. And that changed my whole life. I would imagine. I mean, talk about running around with the badge to say, let's get some work. That sets you on your way in a big way. That changed my whole life. Yeah. From that day forward, everything was different. So when do you, when do you transition from this is, I mean, you're, you're attached with Foo Fighters and you're doing this work with them and then you end up eventually leaving LA and setting up shop back in Tennessee, right? Yeah. Well, while, while the whole Foo Fighters thing was happening, you know, we did one by one and then they went on, on tour for two years. Yeah. So I'm recording other bands. I'm in LA and recording other bands. And then we made in your honor, which was best of you and whatever else is on that record. I can't remember right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then they go on tour. So I'm recording other bands and then, you know, the whole getting out of LA thing kind of happened as once we started having kids, and coinciding with the streaming and the downloading, like those two things kind of crossed at the same time. And I just, I don't know, I just had this moment of like, whoa, what's happening in, you know, we wanted to be closer to our, our parents and everything back in Tennessee. So we decided to go to Nashville. Mm-hmm. Which at that, now Nashville, and I've talked about this so often, Nashville is a a hotbed for rock musicians yeah. moving there, living there. There's really two places where people have uh, relocated to f- as far as the a music scene. 
here in Vegas where tons of people are living right now. Mm -hmm. I know because every time I'm here, there's a different guy sitting where you are yeah. who has just moved here. Geezer Butler was here a couple weeks ago. Steve Stevens is here. Sebastian wow. Bach is here. I mean, you name it. There's a ton Corey's of people. Here. Corey Taylor lives right up the street. I mean, everybody is uh, either in Vegas or even more so for the Nashville has been like, you know, whether it's Mustaine or you name it. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Tom Kiefer, I mean, tons of people, Lizzie, ha the hailstorm, uh, Rachel Bolin, you said he's, he's watching your cats right now, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, so it seems like Nashville, Vegas are two real spots for a lot of people to relocate to in the music industry. But when you got there, it sounds like in the nineties, it wasn't quite that yet for rock. No, when I moved, we moved there, we bought a house in 2006 and then we moved there in 2007 and I didn't tell anybody I was moving because a couple people I did tell were like, Oh, we're moving to Rascal Linux is going to start doing country. You're going to do country, right? right? That would be the assumption. I'm like, no, I hate country music. Right. I want to move to Nashville. Two reasons. One, we're closer to our grandparents, our parents and two, it's really cheap. Like back then, in 2007, it was unbelievably cheap to live And like there. here in, in Nevada, no state tax, which yeah. is huge. Yeah, and there yeah. wasn't, you know, I really flew under the radar. You know, nobody knew I moved there, but I, there was great studios to work at, and the bands that I was recording at the time loved coming there. I mean, dude, I made a ghost record in Nashville. Well, I want to talk <laughs> about all of that. Did you know my friend, my old friend, Michael Wagner? Yeah. Because Wagner was really the first guy was, that I know in rock to relocate there and start doing records. When I moved there, Michael Wagner lived there and James Michael lived there. And was Wolf Hoffman there from Accept? I don't think Because Wolf I'm lived there sure. for a while. I'm not sure. I've only seen him around a couple times. Yeah. But there weren't a lot of a lot of us type dudes there, but we just kind of melded into the country scene. Kiefer was probably there. Was Kiefer he was there, there yet? Yep, he was there. Because he was an early adapter to Nashville too, I yeah. think. So yeah. I was kind of doing an un, you know underground recording all these super heavy albums. The first record I made in Nashville was Trivium, right? Which my producer Joel's a huge fan of. Oh so yeah, Joel. Show Joel, you have a do you have a Trivium a Trivium question for Nick Joel? <laughs> I don't have a question, but because I just I follow you guys. You guys rock. <laughs> but imagine, think about that record being made in a place like Nashville. I mean, I think Toby Keith was in the studio next door, <laughs> and and Taylor Swift that had like does was not like it's Shogun. <laughs> oh, I know. It, it was funny because people were fascinated. Like Toby Keith's band and all these country band musician dudes who I've met so many of them and they're so cool. Yeah. They're all rockers and metal guys at heart, man. They're, all, they're always like, oh, we want to be doing this. We're just doing this other stuff because it's, you know, it pays great and it's easy, but we really want to be in rock bands. Uh, yeah. Well, Garth Brooks, people have said for years is a, I mean, we know Garth is a big Kiss fan and if you've seen his live show, apparently there's a ton of like yeah. very rock sort of elements to yeah. it. So it's cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It really that, is. That, now Nashville, like I said, there's tons of people working there, tons of studios. You certainly put down a big, big uh, part of that as far as roots and, and building that. And the people in the music community that have relocated there it used to be country, country. Now it's anything. And now it's certainly still country, but there's a big rock, the rock and metal presence huge. there for yeah. sure. And it's um, it's like L.A. was when I moved to L.A. in the mid 90s. There was still that holdover energy from the 80s. Nashville is that now. Yeah. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. 
with nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with Sirius XM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with Sirius XM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So this is funny. So my friend Larry Moran sent me a text a, a number a years ago um, when we were doing that metal show. Pilsen, Jeff Pilsen and George Lynch had a band that they were calling Tooth and Nail. And just before we shot with them on that metal show, we, we got a note that we couldn't they couldn't use that name anymore because it was a record label that sued them because they had the same name. That's the label you did your first record yeah. for. Yeah. <laughs> they went after Lynch and Pilsen. To so, the nail. so there's that, that which is uh, which is interesting. OK, so l- let me let me here's because there's so much we have an hour left and we've got people that want to ask you some questions about records you worked on. But I, I want to go through just a few things here and um, get get a few thoughts from you on some stuff. OK, so the Foo Fighters records you did one by one in your honor. Mm-hmm. Um you have not worked with the Foo Fighters recently Mm-mm. when just because they want to use some different people as a producer, does that sting you when that happens or, or do you understand it? I totally understand it. I mean, we had such a great ride together and now so much deeper in my career. I totally get it. You know, and we, and we all became such good friends. Right. That, that does something to the producer artist relationship when you, when you, throw that in there does it make it harder it makes it harder i would think it, it does, does because a p- part of the job of a producer is cracking the whip yeah. and telling somebody hey that's not that good that sucks you have to have the stones to do that if you get real close with someone i would imagine that becomes harder to do it does you don't want to upset your friend right you don't want to tell your friend something that you think they're doing isn't great but did you have do you have a guy that was an influence on you as a producer? Was there anybody was it Garth was whether it was Garth there or were a lot. There were a few. Were there people that you learned from? Because that's a that's a big part. Yes, having the engineering down and having a signature style is one thing, but it's a big part, a big thing to be able to especially an established artist and say, dude, that's not good enough. The work ethic. I learned my work ethic from guys like Garth Richardson and Joe Barisi hands down two of the greatest you know and it was it was never settle it's got to be great we're not going to stop till it gets there i learned a lot about being creative and arrangements from rick rubin being in the studio with him and i went on after 
the Foo Fighters' success in anything to actually produce a couple records for him for his record. Oh wow! For his record label when he was A and R at Columbia there for a little while. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. And we got pretty tight, and I just learned a lot from being around creative. That was the great thing about Sound City. There were so many great creative people coming in and out of there all the time. And then when I started to have some success, I started reconnecting with some of those people in a different way. You know, so I learned, it was like going to college. You mentioned that Out of the Cellar for Rat was a game changer for you in terms of the record, sonically and all of that. Did you ever meet Bo Hill who produced that record? I never did. You never did. Mm -mm. And you were saying before, we were talking about... um, like my friend Brent Fitz, uh, who plays in Slash's band, we had dinner last night, and he was telling me something about Mike Klink, the producer, who did Appetite for Destruction. The record previous for Appetite that he did was a record for Triumph called Sport of Kings. Brent was telling me, if you listen to the guitar tones and sounds, they're the exact guitar sounds because Mike Klink did both records. You'd never equate Triumph, Guns N' Roses, but he said, listen, you were saying that the same thing on... Uh, From, if you listen to Rats Out of the Cellar and then you listen to Kick's Midnight Dynamite, I think Midnight Dynamite was made right after Out of the Cellar. I could be wrong, but those records sound identical. Same yeah. electronic. You remember that drum set? That yes. Doo, 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 yes. Doo. Same exact drum sound, guitars, vocals, everything. You know, producers have a style. Yeah. Engineers have a style, I think. You know, there's a reason that Rick's records sound kind of like Rick's records sound. Rick is defined by that snare sound and the vocals. You know, uh, other guys like, you know, like Joe Barisi, it's guitar. Like, he's the guitar master. He just remixed Holy you know? Diver. I haven't heard it. I can't wait to yeah, hear he's it. Yeah, he did a special edition of Holy Diver that's coming out. Yeah. So, you know, just being around these people, you know, you learn. Yeah. It influenced, and, and then you you take all this stuff in and you kind of make your own version of that. That's what we all do. What would you say is the Nick Raskulinitz signature, if you will? Like, is there, what would you say you are known for, or people tell you they come to you for when they ask you to work on their records? Usually it's, usually it's mainly about drums and guitars and low end and bass, and, you know, they like that kind of approach that I take to records. I mean, honestly, you'd have to ask them. I don't know. Do you mix most of your stuff that you produce? It's 50-50. I'll mix a lot of it. Do you all, Do you sometimes just mix and not produce too? Yeah, yep. Like sometimes some records, like for example, if I've been working on a record for a really long time, like like say for example, Black Gives Way to Blue, Alice in Chains. We spent a really long time on that record. There was no way I could mix it. I couldn't be objective. Like I was, there's no way. And we had kind of a, an idea of what we wanted to sound like, so that's why we we passed it off to Randy Staub. Mm-hmm. You know, I have no problem passing a rec- handing a record off to somebody who's awesome. See, I would be, I was going to ask you about that because if I put a ton of work into producing a record, and now you've got you've got this uh, all these ingredients. Like if you're making a cake, you've got all the ingredients, you've done all that, you've assembled it, you've found the great recipe. Now you're handing it off to somebody else to bake it. Yeah. And we all know the greatest steak could be fucked up if it's, it can if go, it's cooked badly. It can go either so way. So that's your, you know, you put all these weeks or months of work into this thing and you're handing your baby off to somebody else. I would imagine, I would imagine that's, I mean, you, Sometimes it doesn't always work. Do you know, before you take on a job, do you know, is it stipulated that if you're going to mix it or not? It dep- Nowadays, kind of, because it's mainly come down to budgetary reasons. You know, if the budget's super small, you know, I'll mix it. 
fine. I can do it quick. I know that nobody's going to know the record better than me. I can mix it as long as I'm not burned out on it. Like, like that's my thing is like, I have to be able to put some, I got to have some gas left in the tank. You know, after you spend, you know, two months or six weeks or even a month or six months, sometimes at the end of that, man, you don't, you don't know what the cake should taste like anymore. Mm. So I'm going to give the cake to you and see if you can put some flavor back into it. And when I start tasting your flavor, if it's not the right flavor, well, sorry, it didn't work. You know, Do you need to like a band to produce them? I have to. You have to. I, ca- I can't not like it. So you've never worked on something just because it was and and be- just because it was a payday, it was a gig. I have done that. Yeah. And as a result of doing that, it kept me from ever doing it again. Right. Because that is the worst possible position to put yourself in. Trying to be creative with something you don't like, it doesn't work. And and you have to the attention to detail and the time it takes to do stuff and the amount of listening you just can't you, if you don't like it it's just not fair to the it's not fair to the artist it's not fair to the music it's not fair to the band's fans i mean i want to make records for these bands that their fans love that is the point of this for me some some um some producers will also write or co-write songs. Bob mm-hmm. Ezrin has a ton of co-writes on a lot of his stuff. Have you written mm-hmm. with I artists? I have. I've done some co-writes. I have. And that's something that... Uh, where does that line come in when an artist comes to you? Because is that a case where the artist comes in and you're like, the material's not quite there, but I have some ideas? Or do they... I don't who ever... Who makes pre- the approach? I don't ever present it like that because I'm not in the band. But if like... You know, if I have, if I hear a band, like if they send me demos or when we finally get in the room and start doing the pre-production, you know, and, and once people in bands figure out, you know, that I can play the drums and the guitar and the bass, that was a great thing about, you know, the teenage years and float bopping around in different bands. Oh, I'm going to play guitar in this band. Oh shit. I'm going to play drums for a minute in this one. And oh, but you know what? I want to be in a band with these guys. So I'm going to play bass so I can I can, I know my way around those three instruments pretty good, you know, and sometimes, you know, you know, we're having lunch, we're working on songs. And if it's like, Hey man, I wish, you know, we need guys, we need a song that might be a little more like in this type of ballpark or something. Let's go in there and jam. And, you know, if I have an idea, I'll pick up a bass and we'll start throwing stuff together. But I don't, I don't ever, I'm never like, I'm going to write you a song. Like, there's a lot of dudes like that, but I don't, I'm not like that. You have the incredible distinction of being the guy that will have produced the last ever Rush album because you produced Clockwork Angels. You also did Snakes and Arrows. How did Rush get on your radar? How did you get to work with them? (laughs) You're going to like this. And this goes back in line with things I've heard you talk about on your shows and what we were talking. I went after them. Mm. I read online back in 2006 that Rush had, they were getting together to to make the follow-up to Vapor Trails which I thought was a really cool album. And I was starting... But they hated the mix of, because that's like, the one they remixed. Yeah. It's the only cat- re- record in their catalog they remixed. Yeah. Yeah. Later, after it came out. Yeah. So I found out that they were doing, they were getting back together, and I had had lots of great success at that point. So I had my manager reach out to them and be like, hey, you know, Rascal Linux loves Rush. Would they be interested in working with, you know, some young American dude? Because they had never worked with an American producer before. Mm-hmm. And I got, you know, immediately got a response. Oh, you know, great. Thanks for sending your reel. But they're already in the studio with somebody else. You know, thanks, but no thanks. This was for Snakes and Arrows. This was for Snakes and Arrows. Right. And I was just like, oh, oh well, we tried. Went back to business as usual. About two months later, my manager calls me back. 
hey, guess what? Rush called. Shit went south with whatever they were doing. They want to meet you. Fly up to Toronto on your own dime and meet them. Mm. So I did. I booked a plane ticket. I flew up to LA, <laughs> met their manager at the Toronto airport, got in the car. We're striking up conversation, small talk. All of a sudden, I'm not paying attention to really what's happening. And uh, car stops. He opens the door. He's like, there's Getty's house right there. Call me when you're done. I was like, uh, okay. Walked up to the front door. Getty answers the door. I was just like <laughs> wearing the kimono from 2112. Oh my God. He, had the double, he had the double neck Rick in his hands. <laughs> he had Taurus pedals at his feet. <laughs> and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to know Getty for many, many years. And he's the most unassuming chill guy ever. So he none was, of that. There was no smoke no. cloud at his feet. But he was this, <laughs> that's what you're thinking. Immediately just super, super nice and invited me into his house. And, and we go into the kitchen area and Alex is there and we just get completely jacked up on espresso. Oh, okay. like we probably just, we were drinking cappuccinos and lattes and cause he get has one of those awesome machines in his house. So after five or six drinks of that, I was finally like, well, can I hear some music? And we went down into the little studio and they played me some of the demos they had been working on for snakes. And I immediately like, just without even thinking about it was like, Oh, that's cool. But what if, you know, what if Neil was to do something like this? There? And Neil wasn't there. He wasn't there. Okay. And Alec and, you know, hey, you know, what if this arrangement was different? And, you know, that's kind of, that part, I don't know, you guys, that part might need a little bit more fucking this or that. Which, and, again, is you're you're telling Rush yeah. that, that that's, but you've got to be able to do that in what you do. People ask me all the time about that. And I can't explain it any other way than it just happens. I don't think about it. I got nothing to lose. But that's what makes you a good producer because you've got to be able to do that. Immediately out of the gut. And that's what they want. Yes. You're talking about musicians. All these that guys are surrounded by people telling them what they want to hear. Telling, telling them it's great all the time. Yeah. They get used to that. Yeah. So that when somebody finally maybe questions that, it makes great artists think about what they're doing. I uh, In what I do... I run into that all the time because I, I've been doing this almost 40 years and interviewing pe people and talking to people. And it amazes me like the knee jerk, like sometimes where from others that'll be, like, I can't believe you said that or asked that or whatever. I'm like, I'm a fan. That's what you do. And a lot of the artists find it refreshing because mm. they're so used to someone talking to them who had just read a one sheet and really does. And they just spit out what they're supposed to spit out. And uh, there are some artists that are hypersensitive and you can get blowback for it. So be it. Yeah. But, but I'll never forget Sammy Hagar calling me once and he had made a record and he called me up because you hear my record yet. I go, no, I didn't listen to it yet. He goes, can you listen to it? I go, yeah, of course. He said, I want you to call me when you're done and tell me what you think of it. I go, okay, why? He goes, because you're the one person I can ask that's actually going to tell me be honest. if it what you think. Yeah. And I said, all right. And I did. And when you push creative people like that, it's the best. When you push creative people to the boundaries, you get amazing stuff. Yeah. So you, so you get, uh, obviously you get the gig doing, I got Snakes the gig. We did that. You know, I, I definitely, you know, the look when, when Ged looks over his glasses, yes. I got a lot of that and Al and, you know, and they were like, okay, well, nice meeting you. And I left the house, honestly, not knowing if I had fucking blown it or not. Right. I really hadn't, I really didn't know. I fly back to LA, boom, get a call. Neil, they want you to meet Neil. Neil was in LA. I went and met Neil. We went and had lunch. We didn't even talk about music. Yeah. We talked about 
the world and history and politics. And when I was with Getty and Alex that two days before, there was a lot of that also. Like they weren't, it was almost like they weren't interested in my musical abilities. They wanted to see if they could hang out with me. And know you as a person because <laughs> yeah. that's important too. You yeah. don't want to be working with somebody that you can't jive yeah. with. The hang was with. amazing. So it yeah. all it all worked and, and, and then boom, like a month later, we're in upstate New York at a studio, this residential studio, and we were only supposed to be up there for a few days to do the drums, but there was an energy that was undeniable. The You know, the four of us and our engineer, Rich Chickie, in the room together, so I went to them and I was like, guys, I think we should stay here the whole time. I think we should make the whole record here. And there was a little bit of pushback, you know, because that wasn't the plan. You know, there's a big giant machine. There's a lot of wheels involved. But after we, you know, rerouted a bunch of cases of wine and got <laughs> instruments sent up there, we stayed up there and we left. When we left, we had snakes and arrows. And that was, you know when I would walk into the drum room and stop Neil in the middle of drum takes and make suggestions. And the first time I did that, you know, Neil's in there playing and I just had this idea and you know, anybody that's recorded with me will tell you, I have, I will fucking get up behind the board and walk in there and stop you right in the middle of your shit. If I think you can do it better or have an idea or whatever, you know? So I did that. Didn't even think about it. Just got up and walked in there. You know, those guys are watching me like, what the, he doing you know and I get over in front of Neil he's got his head down and I get his attention and he kind of looks up and he kind of stops playing slowly takes his headphones off and I'm like dude that one you know fucking thing you did right there add a couple crashes to you know type deal and he's like okay you're telling Neil Peart what to play <laughs> oh my god that's the ultimate stones but that's probably where the ultimate respect came so, from like I'm w turning around again and I'm walking back in the control room and I'm like, oh shit, oh shit, did I blow it, did I blow it, oh my God. And I walk in there and again, Getty's sitting behind the console, arms crossed, peering. Looking over the glasses. And he goes, you, he goes, he's going to like you, kid. Oh. And that was it. That was it. Was it was game on. There's so much I want to talk to you forward. about, but I'm already like stressing about time because the show's <laughs> going to end, so we'll do more of this. But I, real quickly, the biggest difference between doing Snakes and Arrows and Clockwork Angels, now you've got history with them. Now you've got more of a comfort zone. Was yeah. it easier? Yeah, it was easier. It was easier. It was just as much fun. You know, for Clockwork Angels, Neil didn't write any drum parts. He showed up at the studio with nothing. Mm-hmm which he had never done ever. Because he knew you were going to tell him what to play. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think combination of that, but he just wanted to do something different. He wanted to he wanted to be spontaneous. And he knew that having somebody like me standing 10 feet away from him the whole time with that spontaneity would work. Yeah. And it did. Yeah. Um, I want to run down. Uh, we're going to go to a break here. And there's so much I can talk to Nick about, but I want to let the... I love... You're the first ever producer interview that I've done with the person actually here live in studio. Um, everyone I've done up to this point has been pre-recorded because you guys have crazy schedules and right. what have you. So again, I appreciate you taking time out from your vacation to sit here with me and do this. So we have a rare opportunity here for the listeners to ask you a question. And we've got about 40 minutes left to go in the show. So I'm going to grab calls here in a second. But before we go to the break and do that with Nick, just for because... I understand I'm deep into this and some of you guys are, but a lot of people, let's be honest, they don't look at who mixed or produced records or took the photo on the cover or wrote the songs. I do. So just to give you an overview, 
uh, of Nick Raskulinitz's production credits. We already mentioned Foo Fighters, uh, One by One and In Your Honor. He has also done the two Rush albums we just mentioned, Coheed and Cambria, Trivium, Stone Sour, uh, the latest album from Evanescence, the last couple Hailstorm records, Lizzie was just on, the new album Back from the Dead Killer. I loved Vicious as well, the previous record. That's a band that to me gets heavier every record they yes, make. one of my favorites. Unbelievable. Uh, Alice in Chains, who you're doing some remixes for now that you said you're remixing. I'm remixing Dirt and Facelift and Atmos. Now, Atmos is a surround sound yeah, it's sort full, of deal? it's full 360 sound. It's just not the front, left, and right speakers. There's 14 speakers, nine speakers surrounding you, four speakers above you, and a subwoofer. So I've got the original multi-tracks from those records, and I am mixing them, and it's amazing. How will people be able to properly hear something in Atmos? What equipment are we going to need, or do we need? It's all, all it's kind of all over the place right now. In my opinion, the best experience that cannot be touched is to actually sit in a room and hear it with speakers like that Beatles thing last night. That right. was almost Atmos. That's what that is. It's 360 when shit shoots behind your shoulder and ends up up here and right. stuff's behind you and above you. That's basically what it is. Right. Now there's different headphone models and there's, you know, I think they're still working on the, you're going to be able to hear that sort of surround through headphones. You already can. Is that what Apple's music yes. is putting that out, right? Yes. But you've got to use their equipment and it's yes. their, do you think it works right now, or do you think it's still a work in progress? I personally think it's still a work in progress. It's getting better. It's evolving constantly. So is this the next phase of like 5.1, Dolby? Oh, yeah. Is this like an, oh, beyond that? This is, on, is 5.1 on steroids. Tell me something real quick, Nick, how this works. So like I just got the Kiss Destroyer. 45th anniversary blu-ray 5-1 the guy from porcupine tree steven wilson remix Mm -hmm. rush had a i think 2112 moving pictures done like that it's amazing how do you you're dealing with source material that was recorded what how it was recorded how are you as a producer or mix engineer breaking that up into all these different channels like not to get overly technical about it, but I guess even for a record like Destroyer made in 75, if you have the master tape, there's a way that you mm-hmm. can pull all that apart. Yeah, if you have the individual tracks, you can send those tr- individual tracks into any speaker and you can have them move in any speaker and you can make submixes of tracks and send stuff into reverbs and delays and have those reverbs only come out of certain speakers. Like you can create a whole immersive environment. And, but you've got to have the original masters, You right? can do it with stems, in my opinion. And again, this is new and a lot of people are kind of figuring it all out. I haven't had a lot of good luck using stems because if you have a drum stem... Explain well, what a stem is. A stem is a stereo mix. Like, okay. like when you're done mixing a record, everybody wants stems, like for video games. And back when Guitar Hero was huge, you got to have the drums, the bass, guitars, So the, the vocals, tracks are isolated. Everything's isolated. But it's usually printed down to just a stereo pair. So you have a drum stem, bass stem, guitar stem. And if you, you know, in theory, if you put all those at zero, that's your mix playing back. Oh, I see. But so you can mess with it. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. But you can't take things out of a stem. Right. How am I going to take the guitar, just the guitar solo out of a stem and pe- put it in the rear speaker and pan it up to the top left speaker while the delay is happening? I mean, 
we've had, I mean, whether it's 5.1, whether it's uh, whatever all these different platforms are now, Atmos is the hot thing I see a lot of people going for. We've had a lot of it. To me, none of it is really caught on beyond the super into it audiophile type people. Do you think Atmos has the ability to go beyond that? Do you think it might be the first thing that does or you don't know yet? I don't know yet. I think if they can nail the headphone experience right up a, a few more levels than it is right now, I think people are going to love it. Cuz that's the problem. Even people I know like who've got like I got the Destroyer uh, set and that's I have a a 71 Dolby uh, decoder and Blu-ray player mm-hmm. in my home theater in ho- at home in Jersey. So I can hear it like that. But I I actually was at a few people's houses who have had the Rush one or the Kiss one. And I'm like, hey, have you listened to that yet? They go, no, I have no, no way to hear it. Yeah. I just bought it. Yeah, I'm lucky. I've got the speaker since <laughs> yeah. I'm mixing it. I mean, right. the Rush stuff sounds unbelievable at my house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like the Alice in Chains stuff sounds great. And I think it's going to be great. I think it's great technology. It's a different take on a record. And it's cool, too, because if you put the headphones on, and you, you move your head around like things move. And it's like, it's a trip, man. Yeah, they must believe in it because I've, I saw Bob Clearmountain was remixing stuff in Atmos. Yeah. You're doing it, 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 it. You're hiring people and you're yeah. getting paid to do it. So somebody believes in yeah. the monetary oh, yeah. back end that it's going to pay off somehow. It is. It yeah. already is. All right. So you've also done, as you mentioned, you've, now you've, you're remixing Alice in Chains now for this, but you've done the last few Alice in Chains three. records, mm-hmm. the ones with Will Duvall since Correct. Lane passed. Yep. Uh, Mastodon, you did a Ghost record. You've done, you did a Black Star Riders record, a band. Two of those. Two of those and I love that band and I just had Scott Gorham on a couple weeks ago he's not in the band anymore but it was on the records you did mm-hmm. you've done Corn I uh, mentioned the last two Corns the last two Hailstorm mm-hmm. including the brand new one which is mm-hmm. just blowing up back from the dead love that album Lizzie was just on last week and um, and then you know, how the hell did you get stuck with Skid Row? Are you kidding me? What did you do? I'm, you know, I bust those guys' balls. But tell me, tell, but tell me about that, because that, uh, that's interesting. You've got what would certainly be considered more uh, current band. You, know, you haven't done a lot of bands from 1989 no. on your resume. Uh-uh. Why Skid Row and why this record? How did this land on you? Well, me and Rachel became friends. The whole Nashville thing. We're kind of running in the same scene and just through friends we met and just immediately hit it off. I grew up loves, loving Skid Row. We're, you know, we got the whole Tom's River connection. So Why are you from Jersey? My grandparents are. Oh, wow. My grandparents had a house in Tom's River. Oh wow! Do you do you does, do you still have the house? Do you still get there? No, when my grandma died, they sold it a few years ago. But oh. she lived on Whittier Avenue. Well, okay, because Rach still goes back. I yeah. see him in yeah. Tom's River. We hang out there when we're both. Yeah. I have a place down there as well. My aunts and uncles are there, so we go up there family trips and hit Seaside Heights and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, wow, well, that. But I've been going up there since I was five. Your stones throw from me, man. If you yeah. get back there, you gotta yeah. you gotta hit me yeah. up. But uh, so that connection and Skid Row and and he just came to me one day and played me what they were working on. They had started working with Wagner, mm-hmm. and then who they have huge history with, and did the first two Skid Row records. Now Michael has since retired, mm-hmm. but they, I know that they were looking for somebody to give it a, a different coat they, of paint. They wanted to try something different, yeah, you know. And so I said, "Sure, let's do it," and got them in the studio, and we started working on the songs. And you know, it took a while. You know, everything happened with the other singer, and you know, how stressful was that midstream to have a singer change? It was kind of stressful, but you know, those guys know what they want, man. They know what they want. And I was like, you know what? 
you guys just tell me what you how you want to play this and what you want to do. I'm ready. I'm there for you. And the singer now, because I was right in the middle of that because they were playing here in Vegas and then they called me and they said, I got to talk to you before we mm -hmm. meet you. When they dropped that on me, I was shocked like everybody else that Z was out and they're bringing in this new this new guy, Eric. And uh, the interesting thing about that, and, and Eric has said it himself, is the vocal on this record he did in Sweden. Mm -hmm. Didn't even... So, so what did you... Did you tie in with him on yep. a zoom or something yep. we did we did zooms and facetimes and lots of texting and i would just send him the tracks and he would put his vocals on them and make sure they sound great and sonically and all that and we just did it back and forth and that record is called the gangs all here the singles out now the full album's coming mm -hmm. in october would you be open to like you've mentioned your love of whether it's skid row or loudness or rat bands like that going forward would you like to do more of that around the more modern bands would you like to do some of the more 80s leaning guys yeah if any of them you know if any of them want to party with me let's go <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it depends on who it is you know i don't love all 80s bands right you know but the ones that i loved and they can still do their thing and they can still write great songs of course man right right of course i think that's really cool because there would be some guys I'm just going to be honest. I mean, I know that there's a lot of people that are worried about like association and what looks cool on their resume and what doesn't. And a guy like you that's running credits of like Ghost and Hailstorm and Alice in Chains and what have you might be like, you know, oh, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, in association with the old retro scene. No. But I think that's awesome because I, I've always been like that too. I, I hate people that think like that. I am part of the old retro yeah, scene. I'm old, <laughs> you know, and, and I get to cruise around and I always say I, I'm cruising on a four lane highway. And I get to cruise around all these lanes. I get to go from corn to, you know, ghost to the Deftones and yeah. then do something like Hailstorm. And also, man, a lot of people don't know. I record lots of bands nobody's ever heard of. Like in between all these big giant bands that takes forever to do. I just did a band from um, Colorado called In the Whale. And we made a 14 day album that is just blistering. Killer. So the bottom line for you is you just got to love it. Gotta you got to love it. You got to feel it. And it. if you do, you'll do whatever you have to do to make it work and get them in your studio. Yeah. I'm working with a, a band right now from New Zealand. Nobody's ever heard of. We're making their first album. I think they're great. Independent backing. No label. Great management. It's like, great, great music. You guys got a shot. Let's go. Two quick things. I'm going to break and then I'm going to let the callers talk to you for, for the rest of the show. Um, might be a tough thing to answer. But do you have a favorite record that you produced that to this day? Like, do you have one that, you, for whatever reason, is your favorite record? It's it's got to be Clockwork Angels. Yeah, I think, you know, if I could pick two tied for first place, yeah. it, it would be Clockwork Angels and One by One. Foo Fighters, yeah. right? Do you? And what band have you not worked with yet that you'd most like to? Is the, is there one out there that you're like, damn, if I could I, just? I don't know who's left. If Rat would get back together, <laughs> call me Steven. <laughs> he lives here too. He's up, he's been here not long ago. Uh, Rat, you know, Rat. Well, well, I think it was Elvis did their last record, yeah. which is like ten years ago. And then now. I talked to them a couple years after that. I actually had lunch with Warren one day, and we actually talked about it. And I was like, "Holy shit!" I remember one of the most funniest nervous moments of my whole career, sitting outside of Warren D. Martini's house in my rental car, texting my friends back in Knoxville, going, "You're not going to believe where I am." <laughs> like, and I don't ever do that, but yeah. 
Warren D. Martini, let's go. Yeah, you yeah. know. Well, that's the problem. Warren doesn't want to do it. The other guys do, and that there's you know, and there's also, a lot of a lot there's of so many records. There. You know, I got to say, Deftones' Diamond Eyes holds. Yeah, a, I didn't mention everything. Of holds course, a in special that list. place in my heart. Yeah. You know, and the first Alice in Chains, and the you know the first Corn. You know, and I'm lucky. I usually get to do two or three records with these artists. Right. You know, another artist I've worked with, a guy named Ian Thornley from mm-hmm. Canada, used to be in Big Wreck. Yes, the band we do. I do Canadian special. And that band's come up a couple times. I made two records with them, and they're two of my favorite albums I've ever made. Yeah. And I'm still working with an, a, a Knoxville band called Super Drag, mm-hmm. who I did all their demos and kind of helped them, you know, put out singles and stuff. And to this day, we are still working together. Wow. You know, one of my best friends in the world, John Davis, is still writing great songs. And we just made a, a record for his new band called The Lees of Memory last year, a couple years ago. Okay. So it's, I just, I'm lucky. I still, I basically get to do whatever I want. Yeah. I do whatever I want. Yeah. And if no. I don't like it, I don't do it. That's an amazing place to be. That is awesome. Uh, time flies when you're having fun. We got a little time left to go here with producer Nick Raskin it's sitting in with me live from Vegas. Great conversation. Great stuff. I love getting into this sort of stuff with all the great producers I've been lucky enough to have on this show. And hopefully we'll continue to as we move forward. Um, let's let you call in and talk to Nick right now. Any questions that you may have. We'll talk to Dennis, who is in Boston. He is our first caller. Hey, Dennis, what's going on? Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, huge fan of... Clockwork Angels, I think it's one of Russia's best, like right up there with the greatest. I, I had a hard time cutting it out of uh, the top five that you had, Eddie, recently. I think it's great. It has a great edge to it, and you have to go quite a bit, ways back into the discology, in my opinion, to uh, rank something. You know, the more recent albums back after it, I think it blows them all away. And no offense, Nick, including Snake and Arrows. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. You got a question, Dennis, or is that it? That's it. Oh, all right. Just cool. Well, Dennis just... clock, clock our candles. Uh, thanks a lot, man. I love it. I'm glad you love it. You know, it, it's that's the best is when fans, when I hear from fans that they love the records we make. Like, yeah. That is, that's it. Like, yeah. that means the most to me. Yeah. 844-686-5863, 844-6-VOLUME. Let's talk to uh, Max in Orlando. Uh, Max has a band that you worked on that we didn't mention in the rundown, which we should have, but go ahead, Max. What up, Max? Yeah, I just have to say, I'm a huge... First of all, thanks for having me on the show, Eddie. I always appreciate it. Um, Sure. But, Nick, I have to say, I love your production work. It's outstanding throughout your career. Uh, Going back to that, I believe it was A24 off the Godzilla soundtrack for Foo Fighters, uh, your work on that. But um, Velvet Revolver is a band that I think is vastly uh, under the radar and underappreciated as far as those two records are concerned. But you did produce a single, a couple of singles. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a pre-contraband single, which was uh, Set Me Free before that record was released. And you did my favorite Velvet Revolver song, which is Come On, Come In, which was on the uh, Fantastic Four soundtrack release. I Mm -hmm. love your work Mm -hmm. on that song. Phenomenal performances. How was it like working with that band specifically with Scott Weiland, who is one of my all-time favorites. What was that like? Thanks, Max. It, it, it was, uh, it, it was fantastic, man. It was, you know, when we did set me free, Scott had been in the band for maybe a week. I mean, I, I was, I remember Duff calling me, telling me about, it was just called the project then still. It wasn't even called Velvet Revolver. Because they did that for what, what movie soundtrack was it? It was for the Hulk. 
because and the, and there was a couple different singers that they were kind of knocking around with before Wyland came in. They right? were auditioning a few different dudes. Were coming by mates, and then and then Scott came in, and they had the music. For, they were playing "Set Me Free," and they were they were having there were different vocalists giving their interpretations of "Hey, this is what I'm going to sing," and Scott came in. <laughs> I'll never forget it, man. Slash has got a guitar on Duff standing up there, like, "All right, let's let's hear it," and Scott turns the mic around, drops his bag on the floor, and he's like, all right, go. And what you hear on Set Me Free is what he sang that day. It's not like the recording, but the lyrics, the melodies. Like, mm-hmm. he he had it. And then he left, and it was like, that's the guy. And then literally a week later, we were recording that song at Conway in L.A., and the director, Ang Lee, was there. He came in to listen to it. And, uh, and then the Come On come in song for the fantastic four the band was on tour and uh we recorded that in some teeny little studio in north carolina i don't even remember what it's called or where it was i just remember their tour bus pulling up and i was already there and we just recorded that song super fast you you know wyland obviously a troubled guy a lot of a lot of demons a lot of issues i mean i remember on that last velvet revolver tour i talking to slash they were in they i was texting with him they were like in dubai or something and i had texted him about something and he got back to me i said where are you because i'm in abu dhabi or something with velvet revolver and he at that time he you know he said to me he goes this is getting really difficult Mm -hmm. to to work with wyland Mm because and and everyone knows the stories and the Mm -hmm. history whether it was stp or velvet revolver Mm -hmm. your experience recording him Mm -hmm. did you have any problems or was it pretty scott was scott i'll leave it at that so scott was scott scott was scott scott was scott and we got it on tape it wasn't the easiest scott was good scott was scott in a positive sense a negative sense or a little of both a little bit of both right you know he had his demons back then still but he was he was getting out of him you know duff and slash were really instrumental in helping him get it get his shit together right you know and quickly the whole thing happened because back in 1999 through a sound city connection i recorded duff's band loaded up at oh, his I house i was a fan of that band i had him on for that a lot he of times had, he bought bo hill's old house Oh, okay. So I'm that another part of the weird connection. Right. I'm up there recording him in Bo Hill's old studio, which is weird. But and the caller mentioned <laughs> a a twenty four or something. What is that? He's talking about a three twenty, which is a song the Foo Fighters did for a Godzilla soundtrack. And I, I only, I just engineered some of that. That's not a cover of the Deep Purple instrumental, is it? Because there's a Deep Pur- there's a Deep Purple instrumental. I think it's on Burn that I think is the same title. It's like an instrumental track, A something, but it's it's not. It's unrelated. It, it's not. Okay. Uh, let's get uh, Ken in Florida in. Ken, you're on with Nick Raskulinitz. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Eddie. Uh, I hope your sure, bosses are listening because I, I want them to know that you're the reason why I have a serious XM subscription. Ah, well, uh, thank you, man. I, that too. might get me three cents more on my next deal, but thank you. <laughs> I appreciate hey, it, Ken. Thanks. Thank you. Me too, Ken. Uh, That's two. Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Nick, I discovered you uh, from the Sound City documentary, which is one of my favorite documentaries. Uh, There's a very touching moment in that documentary when you get emotional talking about about Siobhan. And I was wondering if you're still in contact with her, and if you are, what's she doing? And one more question. 
was that you on base during Russia's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony performance? And if it was, tell me about that experience. Yeah, so so I'll let Nick answer all that, Ken. But if you you came into the show obviously a little late a little late today, so catch the replay or listen on the app because we did talk about that at the top of the show oh, today. I'm sorry. But but go I'm but sorry. no no it's fine. Go ahead. So Nick. Ken, the first thing uh, with Siobhan, you know, I, I don't keep in as regular touch with Siobhan as I know that I should. But you know, she knows the love is still there. She was tell me about Siobhan. What? Siobhan was a studio manager at Sound City. Okay, and she was this amazing person. I who, saw the doc, but it's been a while. She she just took all of us runners and assistants under her wing and she just always had our backs and she was just a great, great human being. Uh, I'm not really sure what she's up to now, Ken. I follow her on Instagram and we kind of like each other's stuff and posts and, you know, the love will always be for, be there for Siobhan. You know, she really, really, really helped me. The day that I met Dave Grohl, I was at Sound City on a Sunday picking up my paycheck Oh, okay. And Siobhan was like, you know, Dave's like, oh, we need an engineer. And Siobhan's like, well, Nick's here. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, my, the whole career has been steps. Right. People helping. It's As all, are most careers, yeah. It's all been it's a, a thing. building thing. It's yeah. a building thing. For sure. And uh, Ken, the Rush thing, you know, we had an idea to, to do this thing for the Hard Rock because I think the Hard Rock was just trying to get them to like jam on a Led Zeppelin cover or something. And we were at Studio 606 mixing me and Dave and Taylor, and we kind of had this idea. It's like, well, what if let's take the piss out of it and let's dress up like them and get up there and jam. And Dave and Taylor looked at me like, okay, call Getty and Alex and Neil and see if they're okay with it. And I'm just like, uh, okay. So I called them. Because at that point, you had already worked with them, right? Yeah, we, were, we had already made both of the records, right. and we were all hanging out and tight. And, and uh, so they left. They were like, okay, good idea. Make it happen. So I called the three of them and said, and they loved it. I mean, Getty was immediately laughing. Alex loved the idea because they were a little nervous. They did, you know, they don't jam on Led Zeppelin song. Let's do something cool. And they're all funny. You know, they love the humor. They love taking oh, the yeah. piss out of stuff. That's what I said to people all the time. I mean, I, I met and interviewed Neil once for TV. Getty and Alex, I know, and they're wonderful people. And it's funny because people look at them as such serious musos and very yeah. serious topics in their songs and what have you. They, are, they just love to goof around. They're Three of the funniest people I've ever been with. I watched... Alex Lifeson make Neil Peart cry multiple times from laughing so hard. You, you know, Ace Freely, who I have a huge history and friendship with, Kiss and Rush toured together more than any other band back mm -hmm. in the early 70s. And whenever I, before I got to know, because I've known Ace since 86, but, uh, and I didn't know Rush at that time, that early on. But I remember whenever I would talk to Ace and I would ask him, off the record, on the you know, on the air, off the air. Hey, what was it like working with Rush all of that? He would just cackle. And he'd be like, yeah. Alex, he used to put a bag over his head and he would just cackle. And not knowing Rush personally yet at that point, when Ace used to tell me those stories, I would be like, God, that doesn't sound like the Rush I know. And then when I got to know Getty and Alex and do a lot with them, yeah. it was like, oh my God, yeah, I totally get it. But Did Alex you? used to apparently, back in those days, put a paper bag over his head and smoke a cigarette, throw a yeah. hole in it. Just goofy shit that Ace would, and I love stuff like that, dumb stuff. Lots of dumb stuff, yeah. lots of laugh, lots of great meals, lots of just lots of just hanging out and, yeah. and just laughing. Were I've, you nervous going up there playing in front of them like that? That's the most nervous I've ever been in my entire <laughs> I life. Bet. 
You know, I don't play out on stage. Forget in front that of you're in the, forget that Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins make up the rest of the band. You're doing a Rush thing well, with Rush there. I was totally comfortable with Dave and Taylor. I flew out here to rehearse for that, and the first time we played it was the best. Like we played it one time together, and then we looked at each other. And we were like, "Fuck, we got this." Yeah. Then we took like a two-hour break and went upstairs and made sandwiches and came down, and then we just sucked on it for like eight <laughs> times in a row. But we go out there, you know, and I've got the the whole garb on. And part of the funny thing is, is I'm obviously a much bigger dude than Getty Lee, <laughs> you know. So you know, Dave and Taylor are total skinny rock stars. They look great, but I'm like a big dude, you know. So they had a hard time. I can relate, dude. You know, it was best right after the thing. The first comment I read on Blabbermouth was, "Who's?" Fatty Lee. I thought that was the best thing ever, man. I was just like, oh, that kind of stung a little bit. Right, he's standing next to Taylor Hawkins. Yeah. Everyone is fat. But oh course. my God, I was so nervous. We walked out on stage and and I had to start it. I had to walk up to the front and hit the bass pedals to start the, you know, to start the music in the screen. And I walk out there and I did it and I kind of walked back to where my spot was and I looked out. And I saw Quincy Jones and I saw <laughs> Oprah Winfrey and I saw all these people and I was like, holy, I like started to shake. And then I saw, and then I locked eyes with Jerry Cantrell and he didn't know we were doing it. And he was just sitting there looking at me with his arms crossed with the biggest grin. So I just looked at him the whole time. I, if you zone in on Jerry, if you watch the performance, you can see me looking over in his direction the whole time. Like he saved me. Don't look at Oprah as you're playing 2112. Oh my God. I was so nervous. And not to mention that Getty and Alex and Neil were standing four feet away from us watching. Uh, so yeah, awesome. that's the most nervous I've ever been. All right, we got uh we got a few minutes left here that we got it, and then we got to wrap up, of course, for a Wednesday. And uh, let me see if I can squeeze real quick a few pe- few more people in. Here's Scott in Rochester. Go ahead, Scott, real quick. Hey, thanks, man. Nick, um, you worked on that second Ghost album. There was always a rumor that you couldn't find a band in the old Bible Belt there in Nashville to sing the end of Monstrance Clock. Was that mm-hmm. true? That was true. We uh. <laughs> I had a really hard time finding uh, people who were willing to sing on that record in Nashville because of the lyrical content. Mm. And we found these dudes and uh, they showed up at the studio and it was four guys and a girl. And uh, I handed them the lyric sheet and kind of gave them a little bit of like, okay, you know, this is going to be different for you guys, but this is about art. Mm-hmm. This isn't about, you know, don't take any of this personal. <laughs> as soon as they read the lyrics, they got up and left. Because was it? I don't know. This was it all like satanic stuff, like yeah. that, that sort of vibe, that of the occult album, stuff. Yeah, that whole album is is the ghost vibe, right? Like right. Hardcore. So yeah, that is true. They freaked out, and then we had to do a lot of that stuff ourselves, and we masked our voices. And it's actually me and the guys in the band doing a lot of that stuff. But then we got um, David Campbell, Beck's father, who's a great composer and arranger. He actually put a choir together for us in L.A. And we actually ended up putting that choir on every song also. So it, it turned out to be like a blend of what we did and what they did. Kevin in California, jump in real quick, Kev. Hey, Eddie. Uh, pleasure to be on your, on your show, man. Um, Nick, how do, you, uh, how do you get paid? And how much of a resume? <laughs> you get cash in a, in a briefcase? Or what do you get, check? Or what do you got? Yeah, well, well, you mean how does he get paid percentage versus a flat fee? Exactly. And how much... I mean, if I'm a new band and I want to hire you, you're going to require a bunch of money up front or we're going to see how the album sells first. (laughs) 
Well, well, you don't get, need to give specifics about your business, Nick, but but I imagine everything's case by case, right? Well, man, honestly, man, it all starts for me. I have to like your band. Right. And, and if I like your band and I like the songs, then the conversation goes from there. You find a way to make it work. Yeah, and if I love your band enough, then I'll find a, make it, a way to make it work no matter what the money value is. is there, so deals are, like back in the day, it used to be you could get, you'd get an amount and then you could get points on the record. Mm-hmm. Do they still do points on records for mm-hmm. producers? Yep. You yep. do? The, the deals haven't really changed. They haven't. We've been trying to change the deals for years, but nobody will roll with the, you know, everything else changes, but our deals have to stay the same for some reason. Right, right, right. Listen, man, I could talk to you forever. We'll do it again. Um, whether you're here, Nashville, Jersey, wherever we are, yeah. we need to do more of this. And it's uh, it's so great to have you on today. I really appreciate you hey, coming by. Thanks for having me. Took down, a couple man. hours out of his vacation to come and sit with me here in Vegas. Nick Raskulinitz, everybody. And uh, anything you want to plug real quick in like 20 man, seconds? I, I just want to give a quick shout out to one of my best friends in Knoxville, Dana Teague, listening right now. Loyal listener. Cool. You know. Thank you, Dana. That's it. Yeah, Dana, come on. Appreciate it. We'll keep up with Nick's work. We'll keep uh, keep up with everything going on with Nick. And uh, thank you all for listening, of course, as always, to Trunk Nation here on a Wednesday. Well, great conversation with Nick. I appreciate him joining me and coming by my Vegas place. Hope you enjoyed that. Love talking to the producers. You get stories unlike anywhere else from the producers. And Nick, one of the leading guys producing and mixing records in the world of rock today. Hope to do more of those in the near future. Hope to do another round with Nick as well. Thank you for listening to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Much appreciated. Thanks to Joel Pollock for producing. And again, follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook page. Have a great week, everybody. I'll catch you next Thursday for another all-new episode. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.